Thank you for joining us this morning and joining us in worship today. Um, a word about next Sunday and the Sundays that are going to follow the rest of this summer. I want to give you a challenge, encourage you. Uh, for next Sunday, we'll be in Second Peter, and I would challenge you to join with me in memorizing chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 1, 1 through 4. There will be great spiritual profit if you will meditate and memorize those verses. And by the way, our goal is to memorize through the summer 2 Peter, the book. It's three chapters, three short chapters, and it's quite doable. There's not a single young person or adult in this room who's got their half their wits about them who couldn't join us in doing that. I think it would be greatly profitable, and I would challenge you to do that. So just a word as we look forward to it, I encourage you to join us in that effort. Um, in every Gideon New Testament that they distribute, there are some words. And um, Steve Lewis gave me a copy of these. I would like for you to say them with me, all right? We're going to read the screen together. They're good words about the Bible. Let's go to the first screen. The Bible contains, say it with me, the Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable, unchangeable, in other words. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Those are good words, aren't they? Do you believe them? It's really a longer statement, I guess, than the one that we looked at for many months in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Read that with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture, say it with me, all scripture, right? And it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then we went back to the verse just before. It makes people wise for salvation. And then we went to a few verses, two verses afterwards, where it talks about how it's also profitable for encouragement and exhortation. Do you believe that is true, that all Scripture is profitable that way? Say amen. amen. If you really believe it, stand up. And now join me in reading from Genesis 19, verse 30, and see if you still feel that way. Genesis 19, verse 30. Let me read the word of God. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. 
And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, a son, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, Father, we do believe that you've given us your word and that is exactly what we need. It is sufficient for our needs and every part of it has profit to our souls. So Holy Spirit, this morning come, help a weak preacher preach, help our hearts who are so often bent towards sin and diversion and distraction to hear from you through your word that we may love the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him for everything and that we who are his may follow him with all our heart for his glory we pray amen thank you, you may be seated so let me just start with the question why in the world would we preach on this text well the simple answer would be it comes next we have been preaching through Genesis uh, particularly the chapters that deal with the story of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25, and this comes next. What we try to do here, and I believe in the churches that I would encourage you to always find to be a part of, the preaching there is expository preaching. And I believe in general for most occasions that's exactly the kind of preaching, the kind of sermons that are best for us. Al Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Cemetery, Seminary, <laughs> Cemetery. <laughs> it felt like that when I was in one of those things a long time ago at times, but uh, he said this about expository preaching. He said, expository preaching begins with the preacher's determination to present and explain the text of the Bible to his congregation. Now, that may seem simple to you, but not all preaching works that way. Um, there is a kind of preaching, it's often called topical preaching, where the preacher starts with a need, with a question, with an area of interest, and then he tries to find the scriptures that speak to that need. So they begin with the problem or question, and they work backwards to the biblical text. Generally, the way we do it around here is exactly the opposite. We start with a text and try to work it out to apply its truths to the issues of our lives as believers. And I believe that as a pattern, that's important for us to do. Os Guinness, in his uh, provocatively named book, Dining with the Devil, talked about uh, much of preaching today in America, how it is audience-driven. He says the preacher, instead of looking out upon the world, looks out upon public opinion, trying to hear what the public would like to hear. Then he tries his best to duplicate that and bring his finished product into a marketplace in which others are trying to do the same. The end result, he says, is the public turning to our church culture to find out about the world discovers there's nothing in it but its own reflection. 
I believe expository preaching, where we start with the Word of God, we deal with it straightforwardly, we don't skip over things we don't like or find the ones that are easy, but we just preach through the Word, has a way of leading us to worship. That is, when you join us on Sunday mornings and you gather for a significant amount of time simply to come and to hear what God's Word has to say, you're by your very presence saying to the Lord, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We receive it quietly and humbly. Andy Davis, pastor of First Baptist Church, uh, uh, I believe in Raleigh, North Carolina, said, By this approach, we stand at the feet of God with our demeanor. We say, We will hear whatever you have to say to us. And that is important. That is worship. That is coming and saying, God, you're in charge of the agenda. We submit our minds and our wills to the Scripture. We let your word lead us. That is, we let you, the God of Scripture, be the one who lead us. We do not spend much of our energy trying to check and choose through the Scriptures to find the things that speak to what we think are the issues, even skipping those things that are often unpleasant. We do not do that because we want the Bible to rule over us, not us rule over the Bible. And when we do that, I believe in a steady practice of it, we let God's Word become profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, and all those other things we've talked about. I uh, had a privilege this week of spending some rather lengthy time with three young theologians in our church, three teenage young men, and I learned a lot. Um, our covered conversations covered a wide swath of very interesting topics. I can tell you, I think I found uh, spending those six or seven hours with those teenage boys more interesting than I have found spending any six or seven hours with any one of you. I think it was just a challenging time. And after I had learned a lot of things, for instance, I learned to appreciate that, in fact, rap is a uh, linguistic, rhythmic, rhyming art form. I also discovered that I will never be any good at it. It's particularly spontaneous, extemporaneous rap that I heard them do. But uh, I learned a lot of things. But I finally decided I ought to bring up what was going on in my heart and mind, and it was this text of Scripture that I was going to have to preach to you this morning. And I asked them to read it. They did. And then I asked them for help in preaching it to you this morning. Get ready. Um, actually, um, the first thing they came to, they had questions about it, just like I still have questions about it, and all kinds of wonderings. But the thing that they, they almost immediately noticed, what, whatever else this story means, it must be a warning. A warnings that are meant to reprove and correct us. And I certainly think they were right in that. And so I want to show you some of the things that I think this scripture is certainly a warning to us about that for many of us is the reproof and correction and perhaps the training in righteousness that we need this morning. So warning number one is that sin's consequences are worse than you could ever predict. Sin's consequences are always worse than you would ever predict. We always, many of us who have all walked into disobedience have done so, sometimes making calculations, thinking we know how this will end up. And we're almost always wrong. Here we are in the middle of the story of Lot. As you've been with us these last weeks, you know Lot has uh, been prompted by fear. Uh, he's fled from Sodom. God's angels and God's mercy has saved him in that city. But his fear kept him from obeying the directions that the angels gave him. They told him to flee to the hills, to the mountains. He didn't want to do that. In verse 17 of this chapter, he said, And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, I can't escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. And so, rather than doing what God had told him to do, 
The Lord in his mercy and his patience let him go to the little town of Zor. And their lives were spared. But that fear that he'd had that drove him not to obey God, but to take his own plan and do things by his own calculations, to trust in his own understanding rather than what the Lord told him, did not remove his fears. He was afraid again. That's where we started this passage in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters because what? Once again, he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great preacher of another time, said something that's very true. He said, when a man is out of the will of God, he is haunted by the boogies of his own imagination. I can tell you from my own personal walk and my own life, in times when I've been carnal and not walking with the Lord, it's amazing how many more things you get afraid of than when you're walking with God. When you walk in the will of God and you know you're in obedience to him, following his path, it's amazing how much fear he takes out of your life. Well, Lot struggles with fear. Maybe he was afraid that his neighbors would hate him and there'd be reprisals against him and his family. Maybe he was afraid that little Zor was just like Sodom and God would send judgment on it. Maybe, I, I don't know. What I don't know, really, particularly, is why in the world at this point he doesn't say, you know, I'm going back to the tents of Abraham. I'm going back to the family, to the people that I know will love us and accept us. He doesn't do that. I don't know. Was it a shame? Was it pride? It was something. Well, of course, for the, again, those of us who have been here these last weeks, we know that we're at the tail end of Lot's story, and it's the tail end of a story that's been going downhill for a long time. There's been a pattern of his resisting the will of God in his life. And clearly, the Scriptures includes the story of Lot as a warning. Lot is someone we don't want to be like. Now, he was a believer. He seems to be a part of the covenant Peter. The New Testament says that he was righteous in terms of being the righteousness that comes by faith. But 2 Peter also tells us that he was grieved and broken over the wickedness of Sodom. It bothered him. He wasn't able to live comfortable in the wickedness that had characterized that city. And yet, he stayed. And yet, he was affected. You can be all upset and disturbed and say, oh, all these horrible things. But you can get to a point where all that stuff around you begins to very much affect you, whether you like it or not. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So life, Lot's life stands as a warning. And I would remind you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, you may well be saved, but sin is still deadly. It still damages and no one ever sins and gets away with it. No one. Ever. It brings consequences. Six years ago, a prominent, respected, doctorally sound preacher here in Florida, many of you will know about him, ended up in an adulterous affair that betrayed the Lord, of course, his wife, his family, his church. Recently, he revealed something about the aftermath of what that sin had done in his life by describing a conversation he had with his 19-year-old daughter. He said, I gave her a word picture of how life feels in the aftermath of my infidelity. I told her that it feels like back in 2015, our family was in a car together and I fell asleep at the wheel. In a flash, we were spinning out of control. When the car finally stopped, the tires were up in the air, the windows shattered. Thankfully, God pulled us out and spared our lives, but we weren't okay. We were alive, but we all lost a limb. That awful day, we became amputees. 
I told her that for me the difficulty of losing my limb is hard, but it's nothing compared to watching those I love deal with the loss of their own limbs. It's my fault they now have to struggle through life as an amputee. It was my hands on the family steering wheel. He goes on to say, amputees will tell you they often experience phantom pains in the limbs they no longer have. He said, with me, it's like experience, I experience phantom pleasures. The joy of holding yesterday in a hand that is no more. Phantom pleasures remind me of what I lost and caused others to lose as well. Sin always has consequences. Lot had started so well, he left Ur with his uncle Abram. They faithfully trekked 800 miles in obedience to God's command to, to the father of the faith. But with, with the passing of time, imperceptibly almost, Lot began to drift away from the Lord. He let himself get in the grasp of Sodom's hand, and it wound itself tighter and tighter around his soul. He ends up running out of Zor to the hill that the Lord had told him to go. They have to walk uphill to get to that cave where they will end up his life. But while he was walking uphill, morally and spiritually, he and his daughters were going downhill. And he reaches the line, as far as we know, in the end of this dark cave. Now, I don't know everything they managed to take out of Sodom. I don't, think they, everything, I don't know everything they took out of Zor to go up into that cave. But I know there are some things they took. I know he brought his own shrunken, sinful heart. That was the worst thing he had to bring. He brought two daughters who had been steeped in the ways of Sodom. And I know he brought wine. A lot of it. And I know where it took him was never a place he could have imagined he would go. You know the statement. Some of you may have it written in your Bible. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. Keeps you longer than you want to stay. And charges you more than you want to pay. Lot's story is a picture of that. Ron Hutchcraft said, sin first fascinates you, then sin assassinates you. Remember back in Genesis 13 in the story of Lot? Remember there in verse 5, Lot who had flocks and herds and tents and a wife and herdsmen. He had the world at his feet. Everything was prospered. Everything was good. He must have been admired and looked up to by so many people. And yet he begins to set his heart on Sodom. And begins to do its work. And then he moves. And before long, he's not just close to it. He's in it. And, and then he has opportunities to escape it. But no, he goes back to it. But how could he have ever imagined that it's all going to end with just him and his two daughters in a dark cave in shame? What a warning to us. What it says to us, don't be like that. Be aware of what's happening around you and what's happening to you. Be aware of your own heart. Be careful of where it's drifting. If you haven't noticed, we live in a place like Sodom. We do. And to think that it's, we don't have to protect against it, to think that we could just, just casually live in it and it won't have any effect on us is like walking out into the sunshine every day without sunscreen saying, oh, it won't affect me. Of course it's going to affect you. Hebrews 13 says, Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You guys know, you know, sin doesn't come into your life and say, hey, I'm sin. I'm here today because I want to plan. I have a plan. It's a long-term plan, but I'd like to ruin your life. Why don't you join in? That's not the way sin works. That's not the way it communicates. It is deceptive. It offers pleasure and comfort and an easy way. But in the end, it always owns you. And it owned Lot. 
We noted last week he was probably the worst of fathers you could find in the Bible, certainly one of the worst. And it's simply a reminder to every man here who has responsibilities to protect his family, to provide for your family. I hope that's obvious. It's sad that many men in our society don't even seem to understand that, but I suspect most of you do, that we have as fathers and mothers too, but certainly fathers to provide and to protect our families. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. But providing and protecting for your family cannot simply be materially. How much more valuable are your children's souls than their bodies? What a tragedy to provide for our children physically and to set them off to, to, to live a very successful life in terms of material prosperity, but to, but to ignore the needs of their heart and soul and their walk with Christ. Fathers and mothers and the others who come around them, their job is to evangelize and disciple our children, to prepare these children for what is coming for every one of them, the day when they're going to stand before the living God, their maker, and give an account unto God. A father should speak the truth of God. He should be the priest of his family. Fathers ought to be leading the way in righteousness and the examples of godliness. We ought to protect our children. Now, in this story, there is the father-daughter dynamic, but there's also a sexual part that's in play. And a father, and I know this is not culturally correct, but I'm just saying it out loud today, a father ought to protect his daughter sexually and protect her her purity. That's a great deal what this passage is about. Deuteronomy 22 says that if a young woman has been found to be promiscuous while she's still living in her father's house, she will bear the guilt of that. She will bear the penalty for that. But that penalty will be carried out on her father's doorstep. There's a connection, the responsibility of a father to his daughter. A father has a responsibility to protect the well-being, the sexual well-being, and the chastity of his daughter. And quite honestly, when you look at Lot, there seems to be that for a time he did exactly that. They had lived all these years in Sodom, and yet we find out that when The moment comes that he can say about his daughters, honestly and truly, they have not slept with a man. And that probably was unusual in a place like Sodom. But then there comes that terrible night we told about last week. The angels come and the house is surrounded by those lusting mob of men. And he suggests the unthinkable. I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. This morally compromised man that very night must have polluted his daughters, their very understanding of themselves. It had to have a profound effect upon them. I'm not going to excuse what they do in this story, but, but certainly it had a powerful effect. And what is reaped from that shows up here in this dark cave. Lot could have never imagined it, taken in places he would have never thought, but here he was. Well, there's another obvious warning to me. I hope it's obvious to you. Warning, the devastating effects of alcohol. Now, when you read this story, it's almost like like the writer is exonerating Lot, at least a little bit. Twice in each case, in the sinful deed that is done, it said he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He has no memory of the moment of the sin. And yet, it has to be obvious to us that he also has a real problem in this area. He has a big problem with drink. Isn't it interesting that the older daughter who who knows that she wants to do this knows exactly how to get her father to go along with it. She knows how to get him susceptible to her suggestions. 
She knew that he would never agree to this plan. That her father, for all of his failings, did have some moral standards that were clear. And he was like a moral fortress to them, but they all knew he had a back door, and they left it wide open. They could use alcohol. She knows it. She goes after it. She says, let us make our father drink wine. I am not morally above any of you, but I have to admit, I don't know anything about drinking alcoholic beverages. There's probably every other sin in the catalog I probably know about. I've dealt with, I've had to still, but that's what's one I don't know anything about. But I do know this. I don't believe there's any daughter that's able to force her father to get drunk or to force her father to drink alcohol. It was a choice that he had to have made. She had a, her sister encouraged him. They knew how to play him. They knew him well. But it was Lot who got drunk. And by the way, alcohol content, as best we understand, in those ancient days was tended to be much lower in content than it is today. So he had to drink a lot of wine. They had to bring a lot of wine up that hill to where they were in that cave. And so that's what he did. He was drunk. And his daughter lay with him. Alcohol, its very first effects on us, is it destroys judgment. It makes the unthinkable doable. Then you wake up the next morning and you say, what have I done? What's happened here? And so the Bible so often warns that this is a dangerous part of life. Proverbs 23, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes. It's those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try drink Go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mass. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink what alcohol does it breaks down reserve i'm sure in this room there are many people who have some real regrets about things that happened while you were drinking and while you were drunk remember there's a similar story in noah's experiences after all his faith and heroic deeds in the saving of mankind by god's directions of the ark and following him he comes off that ark he builds a vineyard plants a vineyard and then he gets drunk, and there the Bible particularly singles out the sin of his children. Drunk, naked in his tent, his children, his children sin against him. And in both cases here and with Noah, there are generational consequences. It seems pretty reasonable to me. You better watch out for alcohol real, real carefully. Ephesians 5.18 says, and Christians have problems when they have needs, when they have hopes, when they're afraid. It's not unlike every TV program or movie you see where the first thing you do is reach for a drink. Instead, we do not get drunk with wine, but that is debauchery. But instead, we are filled with the Spirit. May that be the pattern of our life. Number three, a warning about sin's twisted thinking. What twisted, confused thinking we find here. You see that in Lot's daughters. Now, there's very strong historical evidence outside of the Scriptures itself that makes it pretty clear that even in the cultures of the, the Dead Sea of Sodom and Gomorrah, that incest with one's daughters was absolutely abhorred even to them. So that even in Sodom, you would grow up knowing this is, there's nothing right about this. And yet, in the circumstances they find themselves in, Lot's daughters need the security and the purpose and the hope they might have. 
and having children, their children, children from their family line. They, um, they knew it was wrong. They knew their father knew it was wrong. And yet they knew that there was a way to manipulate their spiritually and morally weak father. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, made a reference to this story. And I gave you my theory then about why Lot's daughters did what they did. And my supposition was that they did what they did because they thought they were the only people left on the earth. And I based that on verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. And so if they're thinking the whole world's destroyed, we've got to save humanity. It's a little bit like Elon Musk. I happen to like Teslas. If you want to give me one, I'll take it. I'm thrilled to see rockets going up. But Elon Musk has a, has a purpose. You know, his whole purpose of going to other planets is he's going to save mankind. He's going to save human consciousness. And he thinks it's up to him and others. He's nuts. He's absolutely nuts about that. But, but that's sort of the thinking, perhaps, I suggested that maybe these girls were thinking. They were thinking, well, it's like the days of Noah. We're the last ones that are. And uh, Now, it's interesting because the word for earth can mean region or an area or it can mean the whole earth. And so it's hard to know exactly what they are thinking when they, they say this. Do they think they're the only ones left on the earth? Well, as I've gone back and as I've looked carefully at the story, I'm convinced, no, I was wrong. That is not what they think. You remember they had already been in the small community of Zor when the judgment had fallen and after it had fallen. They had survived, but so had the people in that community survived. They could not possibly think that they were the only people left in the world. So I'm pretty convinced that really wasn't an excuse for what they did. And even if for some way they did think that way, they should not have violated their consciences. You look at the older daughter, how she leads the younger sister into sin. Older siblings, you have responsibilities for your younger siblings. In this way, she was a bad example. She set a bad example to her sister in doing the same thing. Of course, Lot's choices himself had had a lot to do with prompting his girls to think and bring the spirit of Sodom into their lives. Isn't it interesting that these girls knew how wine and sensuality could be played together to make an end come about? They knew how they could use it to weaken a man's inhibitions so that he was capable of anything. They knew a lot about deception because deception is always built in the life of a sinful, wicked people, and it had been built in their life. Oh, Lot was a man who was distressed by all the sensual things going on in Sodom. Peter is right. He was upset and disturbed his soul, but he never spoke up about it. He never did anything about it. Oh, he didn't participate in it, but he never took a stand against it. I mean, if you're going to be prominent in the city gates, if you're going to be uh, successful in business, if you're going to get along and go along, that when all these abuses are taking place and these, these wicked things are happening around you, you don't have to say anything. And when it's brought up, you sort of smile sheepishly and change the subject. They'd watched him do it a hundred times. His girls, of course, couldn't have never forgotten that they had been offered by their father to appease the lustful men of Sodom and what was a monstrous betrayal of his duty as a father. And what happened to him came because so much of it was his decision. It was his wine. It was his deceit, his betrayal, his dishonor. And what an irony that that night in that cave drowned in alcohol he carried out the, shame, the very shameful acts of lust 
that he had suggested to the men of Sodom, he performed them himself. Again, I don't know all about drunkenness and problems with alcohol. I have certainly had many conversations with many people, including many Christians who struggle with this area. I know that when this thing happened, Lot was not unconscious. Unconscious drunks can't do what he did. I do believe it's probably true that the next morning he did not remember what he had done. But alcohol is not an excuse. It simply greases the wheels of its dark heart that was already there. One more warning. Finally, sin has some long-term ripples. As horrible as what happened in that dark cave was, it did not end in that cave. The consequences of that night echoed down to the rest of the history of the Old Testament. Genesis 19.36, thus, thus, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn born, born, born a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. So two nations are born, and they're nations that would be consistently hostile to the people of God. All the descendants of Abraham would face their hatred and their attacks, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, by the way, one of the reasons that you find words of, of concern about them is not because the children of Abraham... Uh, I'm sure there's a reason for that. Oh, it's a balloon. Okay. Did one of you throw a dart? I, uh... All right, let's get back to the story. It's not because... <laughs> it, it's not because the, the, the Jewish people hated the Ammonites and the Moabites because of this wicked way their life had begun. In fact, God honored the promises he had made to the Moabites and the Ammonites. In Deuteronomy 2.9, the Lord said, Do not harass Moab or contend with them. I will not give you any of their land for possession. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 2, he says, When you approach the territory of the people of Mon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Mon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for possession. So it was not the animosity of God's people against them, particularly because of how things started. However, the Moabites and the Ammonites did fight and harass the people of Israel. You remember when God was bringing out uh, his people out of Egypt, Moses was leading through the wilderness before they got to the promised land. There shows up the king of Moab, and he, has, he hires a strange prophet named Balaam. And he hires him to put a curse on these people. They're going to eat every blade of grass. They're going to drink all our water. I want them to have any of it. Curse them. And you remember, Balaam royally was unable to do that. In the period of Judges, remember we were going through Judges not that long ago. Remember Ehud, the Israelite leader who killed the Moabite oppressor, the king of Eglon. He was the fat guy. The sword got sucked at, you know, that horrible story. Hard to forget that one. Or Jephthah. He had to fight against the Ammonites. Made that terrible promise but he was fighting against the Ammonites again and again they had to fight David had to put down the Moabites and the Ammonites but the problems of the Ammonites and the Moabites were not primarily just the way they physically attacked Israel the worst thing they did to them is the way they led to their being corrupted morally with their idolatry back there when Balaam was unable to curse the people of God he had a suggestion to the king of Moab Get your party, girls, and send them down with those Israelite boys. Let's see what damage you can do that way. So Numbers, one, Numbers 25, verse 1, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Corruption by sexual immorality and, and idol worship. 
You ever wonder how people could, could fall? You, you read the whole Old Testament and, and, and God calls them to worship Him and worship Him alone and certainly to turn from idols and yet they go back to the idols, they go back to the Were they just stupid? Were they just ancient people and they had little tiny brains that hadn't evolved yet? They, no, it's just the opposite. They were, I, I would guarantee you that their IQs every bit would have equaled this generation and probably exceeded. I honestly believe that. And, and let's be honest, idolatry isn't on its face stupid. I mean, you can be an ancient person, but if you know you've chopped down a tree and formed an idol, that it's kind of dumb to worship. What, what was the appeal? I'll tell you what the appeal was. It tied up with that idolatry where wicked feasts always, always involving a lot of sexual immorality of all kinds. There were a lot of earthly pleasures that drew them to focus their hearts and their minds to that. It was so easy to do. And the Ammonites and the Moabites were there many times to say, come on, come on, give it a try. Later, King Solomon, King Solomon, who had a taste for foreign women, had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Among them, he married Moabite and Ammonite women. And through them, he brought the worship of Baal and the worship of Chemosh, the Moabite god, and the worship of Molech, the Ammonite god, a particularly detestable uh, false god, because when you worship Molech, you do it by offering one of your children in a fire. Heat up bronze, searing red, take your baby, throw him on that searing thing, and offer him as a sacrifice to your god Molech. Solomon actually built a shrine to the god Molech. First Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Among them, he married women from Moab and Ammon. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord as God. As his father David had been, Solomon worshipped Molech, the detestable gods of the Ammonites. Verse 7, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable gods of the Ammonites. One of Solomon's descendants, Manasseh, actually took one of his own children who could have sat on the throne and offered him as a sacrifice to Molech. It was at that point Jeremiah prophet said, I will never forgive this, and they were doomed without any doubts, to captivity. And all of, that, all of that evil flows in some way out of the cave, the dark cave of Lot and his daughters. It was so bad that even early on, day Moses had given the command, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the sin of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. Well, hasn't this been a cheery sermon so far? Uh, I do believe wherever we find ourselves in God's Word, we're also to find the gospel. And I want to tell you that you can find the gospel in this dark cave, and I want to show you how. So my last word is not a word of warning, it's a word of hallelujah. Hallelujah, watch what God does. And the key to this is that part of the Bible that probably many of you wonder, why did they waste all this paper putting this in here? All those genealogies that fill so many pages in the Scriptures. Those genealogies are to a great extent tributaries that lead up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the family through which Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, will come into the world. So when you get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, it starts with a long genealogy. It's a long list of Jesus' descendants. And in that genealogy, it includes these words, Matthew 1, 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Let me point to one of those names, Ruth. And who was Ruth? Where did she come from? What was she? She was a Moabitess. She was from the people of 
of Moab. She was a descendant of what had happened between Lot and his eldest daughter. Her story is one of the beautiful but long stories in the Bible. She is a woman who married a, a boy from Judah, and he died, and she had a choice to make. She chose not to stay. She could have easily stayed in Moab and worshipped their gods, but she worshipped the gods of Israel, and she, was, she said those famous words, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. She ends up marrying again a, an Israelite man, Boaz. They become a wonderful, godly couple. One day they have a baby whose name is Obed, and one day that, that baby grows up, and he has a son named Jesse, and that baby grows up, and he has a son named David, the great king. And Jesus, the son of David, would come from that line. He was descended from a Moabite woman. And by the way, it had to be from a Moabite woman because a Moabite man was not welcome in the Lord's assembly. That was the promise that were made back in Deuteronomy. It had to be a Moabite woman. But there's something else in that verse. I, I of course, knew about Ruth. I think many of you did. Um, But there's another name there. David's son, who becomes king after him, of course, is the famous King Solomon, the man who wrote and had a great deal of wisdom until he didn't. Um, 700 wives, 300 concubines. <laughs> I can't keep up with one wife. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Just, just, you know, you remember what we were just talking about, and I go, what? <laughs> what? 700, I, how would you do that? Well, clearly, Solomon had a lot of young men to choose from to choose who would be his successor. And he must have chosen, did choose to be his successor, his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam's mother was, guess, an Ammonite. And so we have a Moabite contribution and an Ammonite contribution to the physical descent of Jesus Christ. Do you think that's an accident? I do not. God loves to take wicked, foul, shameful, horrible things and turn them into things that are glorious. been said that Jesus is a savior born from wickedness. He's born from the wickedness of our own hearts also because they gave him a need to come. And certainly his family line had lots of wickedness all the way through it. But Jesus wasn't just a savior born from wickedness. He was a savior born for wickedness. He came to minister and to fight and to destroy wickedness. His miracles were pictures of him reversing the curse He healed a man born blind and leprosy, and he fed the hungry. He was reversing the curse, all the things that had come from man's sin. He defeated it. That's what Jesus is. That's what he does. That's what he wants to do in our time, what he wants to do in your life. And you remember at the end of it all, Jesus had a great battle with wickedness. And wickedness killed Jesus. Most sinful act in human history. And you think of all the people, the plotting Jews, the Roman governor who three times said this man is innocent, the the callous soldiers who drove the nails and ripped the flesh off his back, all of that was sin. But deeper behind it, God was taking your sin and my sin and all the wickedness of this world and he was putting it on Jesus to bear that sin. That's what killed him. Wickedness put Jesus to death. But of course, the story doesn't end there, praise God. He triumphed over that wickedness He triumphed over sin and his resurrection. And I can stand here today and I can preach to you the good news of peace and righteousness and hope. And I can tell you that no matter what's going on in your life, even death in the grave is not going to defeat it. His light has come into this dark world and the darkness cannot overcome it. 
Isaiah was right, surely he was born our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is the triumph of the gospel. It can defeat even the wickedness that flows out of dark caves. So let's review. Let's learn from Lot's dreadful descent. Take a warning. God put you here. You heard this message this morning. Pay attention. Sin hurts. It is not innocent. It will devastate you. Lot lost his wife. He lost his son-in-laws. He lost everything. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Pay attention to what you're using to entertain you. Pay attention to what grabs your imagination and what you're living for, how you think about money and possessions and wealth and and prominence and position. Think about those things because they tell you something about where your heart is. Now, I can't tell you to run out of the United States because I don't know where you'd run to and to escape from all this. I don't think there is a place. I don't think there's a place in this world. But spiritually, there's a, a place, a fortress that you'll find only in a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him give you that victory. Secondly, beware the dangers of alcohol. This happened a lot. It's happened to countless men. It's not less of a problem today. It's more of a problem than ever. Pay attention to this in your life. Fathers, take responsibility for your daughters. Love them, cherish them, protect them, disciple them. Of course, that's just a subset of the commandment for all parents. We have to disciple our children. We're responsible for their spiritual development. That will matter more than anything in the long term. And above all, note that grace wins if you'll repent even no matter what your shame has been it can be transformed into a platform that will display god's glory the greatest wickedness that ever happened in history that made even the wickedness of lot's cave seem small was the wickedness of the cross of jesus christ and yet god used it for our salvation so let me finish i was telling you that story about that disgraced pastor and his sin and what he had done to himself and to his family He went on to write these words. He says, some of you reading this now know how I feel. It may be that you were a passenger in the car that wrecked, or maybe you were the one who caused the wreck, or some combination, but it's still painful. It may be the death of someone you love, or a painful divorce. It could be your daughter or son won't speak to you, or a close friend has stabbed you in the back. You may be living with shame and regret because of some terrible decisions decisions that have cost you everything that you once held dear. Today you may be honestly saying life as you knew it and loved is gone. And whatever it is for you at some level, you may feel like you're living life as an amputee. He says, I can't say anything that will make you feel better. There are no shortcuts, no microwavable solution to these deep human griefs. I can't make your missing limbs grow back any more than I can my own. But what I can do is tell you that God has revealed things to me that I couldn't see when I had all my limbs. God does not promise to protect us from every consequence of our sins in this life. But he has promised that no matter what, he will be with us through every day of struggle, through every consequence, and he will use it for glory to show himself and his power and his love through you. And that promise is true for every single one of you. If you don't know Jesus, come to him. He is a Savior like no others. He came from sin, but he came for sin, your sin, your wickedness, and he died for it, and he'll give you life. And he'll take all the pains and sorrows that you have now, and he'll be your answer, your source, your renewal. Come to him today.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the cross. We thank you for grace that restores broken people. We're thankful that we gather this morning as people, all of us broken to some degree or another. And for your mercy and grace, we thank you. Help us now to heed these warnings from that scripture and help us to run and flee to the cross of Jesus and the power of his resurrection as we live to show your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.